Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was written by Stieg Larsson and was published in 2005, and then the U.S. edition came out in 2008. And the film adaptation, which... I'm sorry, fans of the Swedish version, but this episode we will be focusing on the David Fincher version, which came out in 2011. Yes! Woo! Adina, this is our 50th episode. It is! Our 50th book-to-movie adaptation. Yes. And it just feels great. It does. It feels so exciting. We've I can't believe we've read this many books. <laughs> I can't believe. I, Adina, I have no idea... Like before doing the podcast, I maybe have read 50 books before <laughs> doing this podcast in general. That's, that's not true. That's a gross exaggeration. But yeah, it's awesome. It's so great. And what a great book to do on our 50th episode. I know. And in case people out there don't know, I love the book and I love the movie. I have listed this combo as my favorite adaptation. Yeah. Which... I totally get, I think. Yeah, now. I, uh, I just love it. And I'm so happy that you got to read it. I know. Like, ah, that's the biggest part of why I wanted to do this was so I could finally sit down and read the book. Yeah. And get that that new perspective and all the extra juicy details yes. about everything that occurs. And the sandwiches. And the sandwiches. <laughs> so many more sandwiches <laughs> than, in the, than any movie could handle. <laughs> Yeah. So I don't know. What do you say? Should we just dive into this? Yeah. Dive into this story, this world? Yes. Before we start, though, I do want to talk about the kind of dumb movie history of this franchise. Just briefly. No. Yeah, absolutely. It ha- we have to talk about it at some point. So it's really interesting because the books were published in Sweden and then they were released in the United States. But the author died before any of them were published. And so they all were published after his death, kind of all at once, almost. And then they were published in the U.S. And then Sweden made a movie, and then they made the two other movies. And they were kind of like, the second and third one were kind of like made for TV. Yeah, I remember reading that. The first one was like an actual feature film. And then in the United States, they're like, we want to make a U.S. version. And so they got David Fincher, they did this movie, and then... It didn't quite make enough money for them to want to do the second yeah. and third one. And it being a David Fincher production, it was had a larger price tag on it than I think a lot of movies that might yeah. be like in this genre. Mm-hmm. So, but it's just, we have stated this before, probably on this podcast, that the girl with the dragon tattoo Fincher trilogy that never was is the greatest tragedy of our lives. It is. It, <laughs> <laughs> it I is. say that with so little like sarcasm. I know me too. It's complete sincerity. It yeah. makes me so upset. It's such a tragedy because um, I love this movie and I can see what the second and third movie could have been. And it's just so upsetting And the actors are good. Everything is good about this. What makes it really even more upsetting is that, so, you know, the author died and then they got someone else to write like a fourth book. So it's not really canon because the author didn't write it. It was some other author kind of continuing it. It's like approved fan fiction. Yeah, it is. Which is is very... I I don't like this. Yeah, you know, there's... 
there's certain ways to approach that. Like uh, we talked in an episode to author J.D. Barker in mm-hmm. an interview, and he wrote a Dracula prequel that was like approved by the Bram Stoker estate. Yeah. But that's kind of like a different animal where. Well, and it's been so long since that came out. Well, it's yeah. It's in the public domain now. Oh, yeah. And Dracula as a character is like so like beyond just that book and like. You know, so I mean, it is like a blurry line in in some ways, in some times, but I don't know. In this instance, it just feels like a yeah. cash grab. It is a cash grab. They've come out with two of these mm-hmm. where it's a different author kind of continuing the story. And so then Sony, who produced the David Fincher movie, was like, instead of doing the second and third one with David Fincher, who's expensive, and Daniel Craig, who's expensive, yeah. they're like, we're just going to do like this non-canon fan fiction fourth book <laughs> that someone else wrote and we're going to like recast it, have a new director. And you know what? It failed and no one liked it and it didn't make any money. So good. Yeah. I'm so, <laughs> that's and, what they get. And clearly they made it more of an action film. Yeah. Uh, and so like they were like, well, no one wants like an interesting, intriguing mystery. That's like mature. Yeah. And you know, David Fincher has said like, when Sony approached him on this project, they wanted to make an adult hard R franchise yeah. that he was super excited about. And he was like really invested in this. And then they were like, no, JK, just kidding. Let's reboot this, but make it like cool. Like a mission impossible have or like s- a bond film. Have you seen Claire Foy in the girl in the spider's web? She is like way too just generally attractive. Yeah. Like they did not, like no. I love Rooney Mara in this version because they really pushed the line of like uh the her goth like yeah. look mm-hmm. where like she's still attractive yeah. but it's like a very it's odd and weird look yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. like I'm still attractive but <laughs> okay I'm... still on board okay, still on board <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but uh yeah so that's kind of a little bit of the history of the books and the movies and kind of how they have completely fucked everything up about them ruined my life ruined it (laughs) every year like part of me for for the longest time i was like they can still do the david fincher sequel maybe there's still a chance and just each year that goes by is just like like the knife then yes the knife in the heart that just reiterates like nope it's not gonna no one wants to do it anymore david fincher isn't interested rooney mara's too old now (laughs) it's sad it is it's very upsetting but we still have We still have this movie. We still have it. Yeah. Sorry to get a little ahead of ourselves there, but I just wanted to give you guys a background on the crazy publication history, not just of the books, but also the movies. Yeah, because it's just a very weird. It's bizarre. Like the circumstances of the books are weird and then the movies are a strange thing. So yeah, it's all very convoluted and strange. But speaking of convoluted and strange, let's get into this crazy murder mystery story. Yes. So we start off and it's just this old man opening this present or this package and it's just a pressed flower in yeah. a um frame. a frame. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like what's the word? <laughs> in a rectangular glass thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, and the first lines of the book immediate cr- immediately create such intrigue because it was like like I, I forget the exact wording, but it was like it happened again on the same day it happened every year. Yeah. And this like mysterious package with no uh, return address shows up mm-hmm. and it just like creates this really creepy, ominous, intriguing setup that you're like, what's going on? Yeah. 
and and the movie does the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. So it just really gets you interested right off the bat, and I really like that. And then we get to one of the best parts of the movie, <laughs> which is the title sequence. Yes. Which is, how did they make this? It's all CGI. <laughs> Uh, and, um, David Fincher described it as being like a primordial ooze of Elizabeth's like nightmares. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It does feel like Elizabeth's like all this horrible stuff is happening to her and, and, but just it's made so well. And the music there, there is a cover of immigrant song. Yeah. They got the lead singer of a yeah, yeah, yes to do it. And it's a cover of a Led Zeppelin song. So it's just. It's so good. Yeah. It's, it um, like pumps you up. This must have been also at the time Led Zeppelin finally started letting people use their music in yeah. their movies. Mm-hmm. Or in movies because that wasn't a thing for a long time. And hearing it just, ugh, it's so great. Um, and then we are introduced to Mikel. Mikel yes. Blomqvist. That is the only time I will attempt to say his last name. <laughs> <laughs> Played by Daniel Craig in the movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. In his most perhaps dashing performance. I think so. Even above Bond. I think so. (laughs) Um, So he's a journalist and we're introduced to him right when he is basically on trial for libel, which is publishing information about someone that is untrue. Mm -hmm. He's kind of in all the headlines and you get the feeling that he was set up or just everything went to shit and just he's in this really bad place in his life. Yeah. He works as uh, what is it like the chief editor of Millennium? which is a magazine. And I don't know if we mentioned this. This is, it takes place in Sweden, yep. in Stockholm. Mm-hmm. And so he's kind of in this weird place right now. He kind of has to back down from being a part of the magazine to yeah. a large extent. Well, and he has to pay all these fines. And in the book, he actually has like a jail sentence for yeah. this libel conviction. And he printed stuff against this like banker business CEO type like investment guy. And it seems like the investment guy like really went after him for what he did. Yeah. And you and you like you said, you get the sense that he was maybe on the right track with this guy, but kind of something went wrong. And so, like you said, he kind of wants to take a break from the magazine at this point. And he founded the magazine with his um, good friend through the years, Erica Berger. And they have had an on-again, off-again sexual relationship for over 20 years. Yes. <laughs> and she is played by Robin Wright. Yes. And she's great in this movie. Like, as Burger, she's beautiful and strong and powerful and just, like, yeah. a great character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's kind of some discussion about what uh, Mikael's going to do you know, where he's going to go, how he's going to handle this situation. And then he gets a mysterious call from a mysterious stranger claiming to represent a man who is powerful and rich and wants to meet with Mikel. He and this man is. Henrik Vanger, and he is kind of the head of a large company that was in its prime, like producing a lot of like raw materials for Sweden. Yeah. In the movie, he says, we stitched this country together, talking about, like, the railways and everything. Mm-hmm. And he wants to meet with Mikel, and Mikel agrees to, but he has to, like, travel up north to Headstrom and meet this man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when he gets there, uh, Henrik is really like, I have this proposal for you. I want you to live up here, kind of in the, the cold north, um, for a year and, like, write 
my memoirs, basically, or the history of the Wenger family. And Mikael is like, no. (laughs) But then he's like, also, I want you to solve a mystery that's at this point over 40 years old. And it's about my niece who was murdered. Christopher Plummer plays Henrik Wenger. And he is so good in this role, especially in this part. Like, he is just so... I don't know what the word is. He's just so intriguing. Yeah. Like he almost seems coy, maybe. He, he, very coy. That's yeah. a great word. We're like, he almost seems like he's tempting, tempting or like kind of malicious, but like also just like telling a really good story. Yeah. And he explains this whole setup of his niece disappearing where back in 1966, there was a dinner, uh, kind of a big company meeting where it's a family owned business. So all these members of the family were at, uh, Henrik Wenger's house, which is on an island yeah. off the shore of Hedstrom. So they were kind of separated. Hedestead. I think it's Hedestead. Hedestead? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll just stop saying it then because I'll, <laughs> I'll definitely keep just getting it wrong. Um, but it's on its own separate island. And that day, after there was a parade in town and the family was mostly back on the island, there was a collision on the bridge that connects the island to the mainland. Yeah. And I love that he says, like, it had nothing to do with Harriet, his niece, but also everything. Yeah. Because while people were trying to, like, clear the wreckage of this crash and, like, get the people to safety, she disappeared. Yeah. And no one knew it until that night at dinner when she wasn't there. And then Mm -hmm. they couldn't find her. And then the next day, it was a full search. But she was just mysteriously gone. Yeah. And so it is it is like they set it up like a locked room mystery mm-hmm. because no one could get on or off the island and like none of the boats were taken and it was like impossible for a like if you drowned for your body not to wash back up. So it was like who was on the island that would have killed her? And Henrik is basically like my entire family and they're all awful. They're shit. And they all probably did it. (laughs) He's like, we're like 50% Nazis, basically. Basically. (laughs) (laughs) And for some reason, Mikkel is intrigued by this offer, or maybe he really is like desperate. And Henrik also offers him, he's like, um, Venerstrom, who is the guy that he um, committed libel against, he's like, used to work for me. I can give you the information you need to like, basically fuck him over like for real this time yeah and get your reputation back yeah and like put your life back together so Mikel agrees to this offer um so he decides to move up there erica is really pissed about this because she feels like he's abandoning the magazine and they're kind of in financial trouble right now um but he's he decides to do this and uh so yeah he moves up to the the cold white north (laughs) (laughs) yes to investigate this mystery Let's talk about Lisbeth. Yeah, let's get to the real character. Let's get to that girl with a kind of tattoo. Yes. <laughs> she, our first introduction to Lisbeth, basically in the meeting, or in, in the meeting, in the book and movie, is during this meeting relatively. She works for a security company that part of their business is doing background checks. Yeah. And this company was hired to do a background check on Mikel. Before Henrik hired him. Yeah. Just to generally make sure he was uh, a reliable person and there wasn't any any skeletons in his closet. And yeah. so Elizabeth was the one who researched him. And essentially they have this meeting where it's Elizabeth and then Frode? 
Froda. Froda. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> Ian. Don't say names. I, I'm. I know the lawyer. <laughs> Henrik's lawyer is there. <laughs> and and Elizabeth shows up since she did the report. Yeah. And this is our introduction to Elizabeth Salander. Yes. That, it's that a great introduction. Yeah, she like drives in on her motorcycle. Her hair's like super spiky. I'm speaking mostly of the movie at this point, although it is described pretty much like this in the book. Mm-hmm. She's dressed very goth. She's very thin, anorexic looking, almost childish in some ways. Yeah. Um, Very closed off, like kind of doesn't give a shit. Punk, goth attitude. It's great. Tiny bangs. Yes, they're actually called <laughs> microbangs. Microbangs. Yes, I did research this. <laughs> I feel like Lisbeth was ahead of the curve in terms of fashion because she has the microbangs. Not in this particular scene. She has the mohawk in this yeah. scene. But in other parts of the movie, she has the microbangs, which are p- pretty popular right now. So. I had no idea. I don't know about anything. So this was, this was all news to me. She is such a unique character. I mean, she's classically punk yeah you know what i mean in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. but she is described almost as being on uh, the autism spectrum yes where on one hand she doesn't feel the need to interact with people if she doesn't want to yeah like if someone asks her a question or says hello she does not give a fuck if she doesn't say hello and just walks past them yeah those social interactions she doesn't care about Mm -hmm. and on one hand you could label that as like, oh, she's socially inept. Yeah. But then on the other hand, it's like, why does she have to? Yeah. You know what I mean? Just because like everyone does something doesn't mean it's normal and everything else is not normal, you know? Yeah. Like what does she owe to a person to be quote unquote like polite? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I feel like this diagnosis might be pretty spot on for her um, because they talk about her being like perfectly capable in terms of like intellectually, mm-hmm. but it's those social and emotional cues that, you know, don't feel right to her or that people don't like about her. Um, Cause a lot of people don't like her because, you know, she doesn't conform to those social niceties. Um, and she has this, instead of just being a normal intellect, she has a really quick and actually um, she is a, Oh, what's the term? A hacker. No, for like... Oh, she has a photographic memory. Photographic memory, that's it, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, she just picks up on things really quickly, like understands things immediately, can scan documents in her brain, Mm -hmm. essentially, look at them for two seconds and be like, okay, I I got it, it's all up there. So she's incredibly, like you said, capable uh, mentally to take care of herself and everything. Yeah. But also the problem is that she has had a very troubled past. Yeah. And we don't get the full scope of this in this movie. No. But we get a little more hint. We get some more hints about it in the book. But essentially, because of her troubled past and her kind of refusal to even attempt to socialize, quote unquote, normally. Yeah. Uh, she By people wanting to, like, uh, test her and look at her. Essentially, she was deemed, like, incompetent by the state and she became a ward of the state yeah and they talk about her violent childhood and there being like incidents of violence in her childhood but in every case when you're like reading about it she's provoked and is defending herself oh yeah but just kind of takes it too far um and also when she refuses these tests 
instead of like trying to figure out what her actual diagnosis is, they're like, oh, she's just dumb. Yeah. They're like, she's a complete idiot. She can't even take the test. And it's like, there's no possibility of her like just refusing it because she doesn't want to do it. I don't know if we have this here in America. I don't know either. I mean, I don't know enough about like the legal system. If you're considered like incapable of taking care of yourself, you have to be, you have to have someone who yeah. is like watching over you, I imagine, or, or you have to be like in a facility of some sort. Yeah. But so she's not institutionalized, but also she's not in control of her own life and she's not really recognized as like a legal citizen. Yeah. So when the story starts, essentially, this lawyer who defended her had also become her ward. And he kind of let her do whatever she wanted. And she actually developed a close bond with him Mm -hmm. because he respected her. And eventually she grew to respect and like him. Yeah. But when the story starts, he has suffered a stroke, I believe. Yeah. And so he's in the hospital recovering and she has to be reassigned to someone else. Enter the most, eh, maybe not, oh God, it's tough. (laughs) The most atrocious character of the story. I'll say... At least tied for most atrocious. Yeah. Uh, Beerman, who becomes her new ward. And essentially, he, where her old ward used to just kind of let her live her own life, he is going to take control of her finances and make sure that she is, um, I don't know, taking care of herself, quote unquote. But essentially, he wants just. wants to control her life. Yes. He wants to control her life, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I think this is like a really important part of the story and an aspect of Elizabeth's character because I've heard some criticism of Elizabeth's character. Like she is like a Mary Sue in terms of like, Mm. she's just like super good at everything and is like kick ass and awesome. But I would definitely argue against that in many ways. One of those ways is because this book really, and the movie too discusses like what happens to people who are vulnerable. Yeah. And when there is a power abuse and an imbalance of power, what happens to the people in the world that don't have any power and people don't care about them. And Lisbeth is one of those people like she's a ward of the state. No one really gives a shit about her because they think that she's incompetent. And this creates so many opportunities for people to abuse And hurt her. And it's so upsetting, but it's so realistic. Yeah, yeah. And despite, yes, she's kick-ass and amazing, but she is still, like, put into these situations and, like, doesn't have a lot of options on how to, like, get out of them. No. And and on top of the whole Mary Sue argument, I I love that her character, how do I put it, she is very capable in a lot of ways, uh both like in terms of her skills on the computer mentally and uh, even though she's not physically imposing, does have those moments as well. But her real struggle is an emotional one. It is. One of connecting with people and her struggle to kind of like feel like she's a part of society and to find people who accept her. Yeah. So I think the people who make that argument about her being a quote unquote Mary Sue which I hate that term because it's just too. sexist to begin with. It is, yeah. There's no alternative. There's no no man, man there's version no of that. Gary Lou, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So that's just very frustrating because like they're clearly just looking at this as a a story on the surface as like oh a cool kind of spy hacker, hacker movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. when it's like no, it's much deeper than that. 
And she's a much more complex character than that. So. Yeah, she is. And that's what I love about her. Yeah. But, of course, this becomes a situation where this um, new guardian, I can never pronounce his name. Bierman. Bierman. Uh, ends up exploiting her. And first, he refuses to give her money for this laptop that she needs because hers broke without her giving him like a sexual favor. And the scene is very upsetting in both the book and the movie because Lisbeth kind of goes along with it, but is also like physically forced to do so. And she is clearly like, okay, I need to figure something out on how to stop this from happening again. Um, At one point in the book, she actually has a plan to murder him. Yeah. (laughs) I love this (laughs) because not being familiar with the book when it got to this point, I was like, oh, my God, she's going to she wants to kill him. Yeah. Excellent. (laughs) But then she's like, well, then if I kill him and someone else replaces him, I could be in the same situation. So instead, she has a plan to control him. But that plan goes to shit because, again, you know, she is a vulnerable person and you know, she is physically frail. And I like that she has limits. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. She's not just like, oh, I just like beat the shit out of everyone. You know what I mean? Yeah, her her physical trait is basically like she keeps getting back up in most ways. Yeah. Uh, but essentially, she wants to document him abusing her like he did the previous time. So she has a, a camera in her bag to kind of like get footage of it. And yeah. she's willing to go through that one sexual act again, at yeah. least to get it documented. So she can blackmail so him. So she can blackmail him. But he makes her go to his house. And when she gets there, um, he traps her in a situation that is so much worse than even the previous one. Yeah. Where he uh, just physically overpowers her and she finds herself handcuffed to the bed mm-hmm. um, where he just maliciously rapes her. Yeah. And it, it is just a very just terrible scene to read and to see in both versions of the story. I mean, it really doesn't hold back at all. No, in both versions. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's in a way it's important because it doesn't, it's not exploiting this situation as like for shock value necessarily. I think it is genuinely portraying it as horrible. Yeah. um, Accurately. So yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. And it's like, um, in the book, Lisbeth describes it as being a very sadistic rape, and he kind of tortures her a bit, too. It's very about, like, him just, like, a sadism, like, thing. And I don't know a lot about, like, sadism and that mentality, but she didn't understand, like, what was going to happen and what this guy was capable of, basically. And she, there is some research in the book where she talks about how people who are like this seek out victims that they know will like have either like no one to turn to or be Mm -hmm. like unable to report the crime. Um, so it's very manipulative, almost like a pedophilia type thing where they seek out like weak victims, but you know, this happens to her and it's really horrifying and like physically awful. Yeah. What he does to her. And then we don't really see much after that. All we know, like, she comes back, like, a week later. Yeah, and clearly her plan has kind of changed. But essentially, she shows up at his door again. She sets up another call. She says, I need money. Yeah. She shows up and then immediately tases him in the neck. And when he wakes up, (laughs) 
he finds himself in a similar situation that he had put her in. Exactly. What I hate about this guy is that he tries to be like nice. Yes. To her when he's not raping her. He's like, are you okay? Do you need like a ride home? Like after he raped her. Yeah. And she's just like, no, I can get home by myself. And then when she comes back for the second visit, he's like, yeah, I feel badly the way like things ended last time. Mm -hmm. And then she just like tases him and I love it. (laughs) This is an interesting theme and I'll touch on it later after we discuss more examples of like kind of civility in this story. That's like very rules. Yeah. 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 That's very, that's kind of very interesting. But essentially, he wakes up, she has him stripped down and handcuffed to his bed. Yeah. Where she just lays out the entire situation. Yeah. Uh, starting with shoving a dildo up his ass. Yeah. Which is... What he did to her. Exactly what he did to her. Mm-hmm. And wonderfully just like, good. That is exactly what he yeah. deserves. Yeah. To have the exact same thing happen exactly. to him. To feel that pain. To feel that vulnerability when you, you can't do anything. And you're at the mercy of someone else. And she shows him the tape. Mm-hmm. She's like, uh, bet you didn't know I was recording this the whole time, you fucking asshole. <laughs> Guess what? I have this tape of you. Is you, if you so much as sneeze, I will like download this, put this all over the internet. Yeah. And, and she's like, also, if I happen to die, yeah. like somehow, like if I get hit by a car, it will automatically upload to the internet. So yeah. don't kill me. Mm-hmm. I love how this plays out. In the movie, because she she like gets herself like physically ready. She's got like black eye makeup around her eyes. Yeah. And she tells him she's like, you've read the reports on me. They're like, they say that I'm insane. I am insane. Yeah. (laughs) He like tries denying it. He's gagged. And he's like, "Mm -mm, no, you're mm -mm." not. You're not. She's like, no, it's fine. It's okay. I am insane. (laughs) I will kill you. And I love this. And then she's like, she basically threatens him. She's like, I get my money back. You're going to write reports about me that I'm great. And then you're going to get this guardianship revoked and we're all going to be good. Also, you're never going to have sex with a woman again because you're awful. And so she's like, just to make sure that you never have sex with anyone again, I'm going to tattoo my own tattoo on you. (laughs) I'm going to try my hand at this whole tattoo artist. I've never done this before. (laughs) Yeah. And so in the movie, I think it just says I'm a rapist. She tattoos that on yeah. his... Yeah, I think it's I'm a rapist pig. Okay. I think the word pig is still there. That's good. In the book, it's like I'm a sadistic rapist pig or something. It was a much longer sentence <laughs> yeah. in the book. But it covers like his whole stomach and yeah. chest. <laughs> and then she's like, later. Bye. I, I thought the funniest... not None of this is really that funny, but when she leaves, his hands are like zip tied to the bed and she tosses... Like, like a, a, bolt cutter? A, a bolt cutter or like wire cutters beside him yeah, as movie. she leaves. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, can he get those? Like, I don't think. <laughs> How is he going to get out of I those? was like, I don't think there's <laughs> anyone. She didn't put them in his hand or anything. She just kind of tied. His feet are tied up, too. So I'm like, yeah. I don't know how this is going to happen. But <laughs> but he does get out eventually. But I do think it's it very. It's smart of her, even though she had every right to literally murder this person. Yeah. To instead control him. Yeah. And kind of gain back her freedom Mm -hmm. that way. Yeah. By, you know, keeping her, keeping him in her like peripherals and just making sure and keeping tabs on his like laptop and everything else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the situation is very, you feel 
so happy for her that she was able to like get control back. get control of the situation exactly yeah there's a funny scene later in the movie where she like <laughs> okay, is meets him in the elevator and he doesn't realize it's her but then she stops the elevator and she's just like yelling at him and then she's basically like and stop looking at tattoo removal websites like, yeah <laughs> well and he has to write these fake reports about how sociable she's being yeah. and she's like i read your last report and i wasn't impressed <laughs> she's like be a little more like excited for me in the future yeah <laughs> and he is just like terrified terrified of her now mm-hmm. which is so great awesome i love it let's get back to Mikel in the cold white north yes this he- part of the book Not a lot is happening. No. Essentially, he is finding out... It goes very in-depth into the whole Vanger family dynasty and the history historically and their relations to, like, the Nazi party and fascist movements. And there's so many people. There's actually a really handy family tree at the beginning of this book. There is. That was very handy. Yeah. I referred to that quite a bit at the beginning. Essentially giving you all of Henrik's... uh, brothers and then their kids and like grandkids grandkids and just like a whole very uh comprehensible family tree that was very very helpful but essentially like you said not a lot happens around this time in the story in the book kind of continuing the investigation in the book he actually begins a sexual relationship with one of the vanger women cecilia yeah who we see briefly in the movie. Who's Harriet's cousin. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she, I, I love it because in the move in the book, excuse me, she is older. She's like mid fifties. Yeah. I'd say, whereas, uh, Mikel is in his forties. Yeah. So she's an older woman, but we both talked about this before. What we love about Mikel is that he loves women. Yeah. And he loves women of any shape, age, uh, like any demographic you can think of. Like, it yeah. doesn't matter. He just loves... He just loves women. He loves the ladies. Yeah. <laughs> and this is, like, consistent throughout the book because even Lisbeth reports this in, like, her um, <laughs> report on him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and you said in an- another book later on, he, like, starts seeing a woman who is, like, a bodybuilder. Yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah. Great. I'm so happy about that. <laughs> yeah. He, like, the fact that he has a sexual relationship with Lisbeth who's like 23, 24, is like, eh, it's a little weird. He's like in his 40s. But he also has sexual relationships with his coworker, Erica, who's around the same age, and this other woman, Cecilia, who's like 65 or 50. <laughs> like putting her <laughs> Not 60. quite that old. She's but... like in her you know late 50s. So it's just like, I don't know. He just is like, women aren't great. I like to bang them. Yeah. As long <laughs> as they're into it, I'm into it. Yeah. <laughs> The, the thing I love, though, and this is kind of where I want to talk about David Fincher a little bit, is he is, first of all, just a master filmmaker. Yes. A master storyteller. And I don't think there's any other filmmaker who can make the most mundane things just intriguing and interesting and sexy and exciting. Yeah. And tense. And most of the time, it's like people, like in this movie... Looking at photographs, mm-hmm. online hacking, yep. um, just walking around, like mm-hmm. very typical, boring things usually, but just the way he films them, the score by uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross yes. is on point. It is so great. It's amazing. It adds such a level of atmosphere to mm-hmm. this story and just 
this is what David Fincher does. I can't think of this movie without hearing the soundtrack in my mind. No, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And and like he he's done this like with the Social Network. You know, that's a movie with a lot of just kind of boring elements to it. Yeah. But you're intrigued the whole time. Mm-hmm. And he he really brings that into this movie as well. And I think too the winter landscape of Sweden mm-hmm. is really well filmed. And it becomes like such an important part of the story and the atmosphere. And it just sets the scene and the tone so well. Absolutely. Yeah. The whole, the, the Vanger family estate yes. with the homes and mm-hmm. everything is, is great. And, and one of the, one of the best moments in the movie is when he finally, he gets these photos of Harriet at the parade earlier in the day and he puts them in chronological order yeah. and he sees her change, her expression at first. She's looking at the parade and yeah. then she, she looks over and looks horrified. Mm-hmm. And the shot of Mikel taking his glasses off, like yeah. being shocked that he's like seeing this uh-huh. and the music and he like the, the, the shot of the cabin he's in, he like turns around like he's creeped out. Yeah. Like, it's freaking him out. Yeah. It's freaking us out. It is. (laughs) It's so effective. It's, like, very, very creepy. Yeah. And it's just old photographs. Mm Mm-hmm. But just, I mean, come on. Amazing. Unbelievable. (laughs) So, like you said, he has this break with the photographs where he realized that she saw something that day before she disappeared and that it could be linked. And then around this time as well, there are these, like... In the back of Harriet's diary, there were just these numbers and then a name attached to them. And people thought they were phone numbers or trying to figure it out. And then Mikel's daughter comes to visit him. He's like a super absent father. Not super great, but <laughs> <laughs> um, she comes to visit him and she's kind of religious. And she mentions something about the Bible codes. He's like, what are you talking about? She's like, she's like, the Bible codes on your desk. Like, I saw that you were studying the Bible. And he's like, (gasps) he's like, what? (laughs) So he goes back and he realizes that the numbers correspond to a book of the Bible, in this case, Leviticus. Yeah. And then a chapter and verse. And I I loved in the the book. It happened to be each one of those was began with a three and a two, Mm -hmm. which was the area code for where they were in Sweden, which is why they thought they were phone numbers Mm -hmm. because it made them all Swedish phone numbers. Yeah. Which was like just, you know, kind of a cool coincidence that like was setting everyone off. Mm -hmm. So when he looks up the Bible verses, he realizes that these are all super creepy, fucked up orders in Leviticus about how to murder people. Yeah, they're not all related to murder, but they have like murdery vibes. <laughs> Aren't they all like about, oh, if you find a woman who blah, 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 you have to stone Well, some her of them and... is about like sacrificing a dove and things like that. Oh, I guess. Yeah. I thought um... it was always on top of a murder. But... <laughs> <laughs> and so he remembers this case that he heard about this weird murder case of a woman. And he makes the connection that the verse is tied to that murder. Mm-hmm. And so he's trying to find these other like if the other verses relate to women being killed around Sweden. And he's like, did Harriet know about a murderer? But he's like, I need help with this. So this is when Mikkel finds out about the report. And after reading it and being appalled by how in-depth it was about his personal life. Yeah. He finds Lisbeth and decides to give her an opportunity, a business opportunity. And the most the thing he's disturbed the most about is that he knows she hacked into his computer. Oh yeah, I forgot about that cuz 
she included information that was only on his computer. So that was like the tip mm-hmm. off for him. So we finally get our two heroes to meet up and it's just as wonderful as we hoped it would be <laughs> because Mikel shows up at Lisbeth's apartment after she's had a night of partying and he's just there. He just shows up and she's like, what the fuck? And he's like, I brought sandwiches. Uh, why don't you get dressed? I'll put out some sandwiches for us. I'm going to wash her dishes for you. He like cleans her kitchen and she's just like, she doesn't know how to act. Yeah. She's just thrown for a loop. And I love seeing Elizabeth in this way because usually she is kind of so defensive and aloof. And Mikel, I think, catches her off guard. And what I love about their relationship is that she kind of finds herself instinctually, instinctually trusting him. And whether that's because she did a detailed investigative report on him (laughs) or because she just gets along with him in some weird way, um, they just seem to click. Well, and also Mikel, like that is the most abrupt introduction to Elizabeth you can have is seeing her that way in her apartment. Yeah. And he still like just treats her completely normally. Yeah, he's very accepting. Like he never gives her a hard time about if she doesn't answer him or if she's kind of like rude to him or whatever. He just kind of accepts that she is the way she is. And he just wants to have a relationship with her, whether it's a working relationship, whether it's a friendship, whether it's a sexual relationship on whatever terms she wants. Yeah. So he's willing to respect her space, her boundaries, but also accept her for who she she is. Something I want to talk about here just briefly is I actually like the dialogue and script of the movie better than the book. Really? And it's not a lot, but there's just a lot of lines that really stick to stuck with me from the movie. And it is a little unfair because I did see the movie first. But I think arguably some of them are inherently better. But like when he first enters her apartment. Yeah. He says he says something like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to alarm you. Mm -hmm. And she has a taser with her. And she's like, if you touch me, I'll do more than alarm you. Yeah. (laughs) It's this great line. Yeah. And he's like, "Okay." (laughs) He's like, that won't be necessary. Yeah. But the book has generally that kind of same back and forth. But it's just more. There's just more of it, I guess. And it just like less sharp. Yes. That line is like straight cuts to the bone. Mm hmm. And I really like, I wish I knew the screenplay writer's name. He does a lot of good um, repetition of things where, you know, a a character will repeat a line back that's like slightly different. Yeah. Where later on when Mikkel's writing a different article and Berger's like, I want to know. He's she's like, who's your source? He's like. This time you don't want to know. And she goes, this time I do want to know. Yeah. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The guy that wrote the screenplay actually also wrote the screenplay for Moneyball. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Ooh, I love Moneyball. I forget (laughs) that guy's name. I... It's like Steve Zalian or something. Zalian or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's another great line that I love more in the movie where... uh, in the book, he just says at the end of this scene, like, I want you to help me to identify a murderer. Yeah. A murderer. But in the movie, his line is, I want you to help me catch a killer of women. Yes. And it's not only a great line, but you can see the connection it has to Lisbeth. Yeah. Like when she looks at him. Mm-hmm. She's, she's like, like, oh, yeah. She's like, oh, my God, like, this is what I like I need basically yeah. in my life. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can just tell it, it touches a nerve with her or connects with her on a level that I don't think. 
I want you to help me identify a murderer would have. Like yeah. the, the women aspect is specific to her. Mm-hmm. So things about that with the script, I think, are a little tighter and just a little more interesting in their dialogue. I would agree, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not that the book is bad by any means in its dialogue. Well, and also the book is a translation. So we do have to think about that. That's true. That's mm-hmm. a very fair point. Yeah. There might not have been as much... Uh, play with the dialogue when translating it. I don't know. And it could be less clarity too when you're translating mm-hmm. something. The meaning might get like the the dialogue might not be as sharp. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So but something I want because this scene had two examples of lines that were added or changed that I thought were just a little crisper in the mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. So Elizabeth agrees to work with Mikel and she starts investigating and using her skills on the web and like also in the field researching murders and she ends up linking all of the names listed in Harriet's diaries to these verses and also finding real life murders from them. And then she finds more actually. Yeah. Ones that even Harriet hadn't written down that have the similar characteristics. And they're basically realizing that there's some kind of serial killer who is murdering women in a weirdly religious tied way And there's a couple other connections, too. Um, Most of the women have biblical names, so they're assuming that they might be Jewish. And then they're trying to figure out, though, like, what was the connection to Harriet? And Mikkel ends up finding, like, another photograph from the parade. And he has this whole thing where he tracks this photo down, all this stuff. And they see a shot of what Harriet was looking at at the parade. But it's very blurry, and so they can't really tell what's going on and what it is. Yeah, they can't identify anyone across the street who she may have seen or like really understand anything. So it it seems like a dead end Mm -hmm. at that point. But essentially, they decide to keep pushing forward with the investigation. And they assume because these murders took place all throughout Sweden and if Harriet was investigating that this person might have was probably a part of Vanger Industries. And could have been a member of the family. Yeah, who maybe was traveling around. Mm -hmm. So this kind of splits them up. Elizabeth goes to the Vanger records to research this Mm -hmm. while Mikkel is kind of like looking at other evidence on his own. Yeah. We forgot to talk about the cat. Oh my God. Oh no. No, the cat. Not the cat. The cat was like staying with Mikkel. It was like a stray that just kind of hung around and he would feed it. It would like stay with him. And then they find (laughs) the cat mutilated, murdered. Um, in front of the cabin as a clear message to he and Lisbeth to like fuck off, basically. Yeah. This cat was so sweet and like slept with Mikael when it was cold and he just called it cat and it was great. And it, it was, was great. It's uh it's the biggest <laughs> loss of the entire movie, I think. I know. <laughs> and um Mikael and Lisbeth begin a sexual relationship around this yeah. time too. It's it's kind of funny because she absolutely introduces and seduces him she's just like okay let's do it (laughs) yeah this is actually another moment though where i kind of liked the setup in the movie a lot where mikhail gets shot at when he's uh on the island and has to flee Mm -hmm. and shred like um pieces of wood from where the shot hit near him like cut his head open yeah so by the time he gets back to the cabin his head is bleeding badly and so He's in the shower and Elizabeth has to sew up the wound on his head. Yeah. Fun fact, the blood you see is all CGI. I all of it that. that's running yeah. down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she sews it up. And I love it because Daniel Craig's 
I mean, he's act like he's acting kind of wimpy almost, yeah. even though I'd be acting the same way. Uh-huh. But like, you know, he's Bond, so it's kind of funny to see him that way. But anyway, I really love it because it's in this moment that Lisbeth, right after it approaches him for the sexual relationship. And I think it's because after she was raped, there was a scene of her in the shower. Yeah. Like showering off and like wounded from this encounter. And so I think there was a connection where she saw Mikel in that similar vulnerable state and felt a connection to him. Like, that's yeah. my interpretation of it. That makes sense. But it kind of, that's what I thought of when I saw that scene. And so I think that gave her a deeper camaraderie with him, mm-hmm. was seeing him vulnerable like that and kind of understanding what he's going through a bit. Yeah. So that was, in the book, she just kind of is like, you know what, I think I'll sleep with him. I think that's what I want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is perfectly fine, but... It is. Yeah, so... They start banging. Yes. On the DL. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I don't think this is a good idea. And she's like, I think it is. (laughs) (laughs) Now shut your mouth. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. So that's what kind of sets up. It's what ramps things up to the point where they decide to research this further in the Vanger Industries records. Yes. So Lisbeth is looking through the records, the travel records and everything. Mikhail's looking at photos and they kind of come to like separate but the same conclusion where Lisbeth realizes that it was Harriet and Martin's uh, father who was committing these murders. Yeah. Because he was like in the town on behalf of Vanger Industries, each town like right around the time of the murder occurring. Yeah. And he was known to be a drunk and abusive and, like, just kind of a terrible person. Yeah. So she makes that connection. Meanwhile, uh, Mikkel sees a photo of Martin. Her, her, her brother Martin in his school, like, blazer with a patch on it. Mm-hmm. And even though he can't see the figure in that photo across the street, he notices the patch yeah. and the color of it and knows that. And he lied about when he was in town that day. Mm-hmm. And so between the lie and Harriet's reaction, he's like, that's who she was afraid of. She was afraid of her brother. And then he also sees a picture of one of the girls who was murdered. And she also is wearing the same blazer. Mm, yeah. So it's like, did he kill her? Um, so there's reason for Mikel to suspect that Martin is involved in Harriet's murder or disappearance. Yeah. And meanwhile, Lisbeth is like, oh, Martin's father, Gottfried like killed all these women. And as she's researching, she also kind of realizes that Martin may be linked to one of the other crimes as well. Yeah. Cause the one, one, the one she discovered occurred after her, after Harriet's father died. Yeah. So it was like, who did that one? Mm-hmm. So basically the answer is Martin. Yes. And so Mikel, we get like, to the dumbest part, like in any just terribly thought out horror movie decision is like, I suspect this man of murder, I'm going to go right to his house. I'm just going to like peek around his house. And in the book, he like calls Elizabeth a lot and is trying to like contact her and be like, I think I solved it. Like, I think it might be Martin, but like they, he, they can't get through to each other. Yeah. So he's like, I'm just going to go. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, I'm going to snoop around the house. And he does. And then Martin catches him and it plays out a little bit differently in the book and the movie yeah. in the book. Um, Martin catches him around the house and it's just like, I have a gun. And he's like, come inside. Yeah. Yeah. In the movie, Mikel is almost like scot-free. Yeah. He's out of the house. Yeah. 
and because he's a klutz and falls, mm-hmm. Martin hears him and is like, oh, Mikkel, what are you doing outside in the dark? <laughs> At around, my house. At my house. <laughs> <laughs> like, Daniel Craig plays this part so well because yeah. he's just like really kind of incompetent in a way. He's like, I, I don't know. <laughs> like he plays it not suave at all. No. And so uh, Martin says, uh, yeah, Henry, Henry wanted me to ask you a question. Why don't you come on inside? Yeah, come in for a drink. And so like Mikhail's like, well, I guess I'll just follow, you know. <laughs> so he goes inside and there's this great realization where he had taken a knife earlier yeah. as defense. And Martin realizes there's a knife is gone because his he house. He doesn't own anything in his house. No, his <laughs> house is like an Ikea uh, storeroom setup. Yeah. Like where like there's everything impeccably in place. Yes. So he notices the knife is gone. And that's when he understands, OK, Mikel knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. So time to pull a gun on him. Yep. And then he's like, come into my torture dungeon, (laughs) my secret room. Yes. And this is where we find out a lot of information. So we find out that Martin is a serial murderer and rapist. And for like, what, 25 years? Yeah. He's killed about two women a year. So that's about 50 women. And he's kept them in this basement and no one has known about it. Because the women that he targets, again, reiterating mm-hmm. that point about the vulnerable and the weak, are prostitutes, are women with drug problems, and are immigrant women as well. Yeah. So populations that people don't care about, that are marginalized, and that are vulnerable and weak, and he preys on them, and kidnaps them, rapes them, tortures them, and then murders them and throws their body in the ocean. Yeah. And Mikel is in a horrible situation where... Basically, Martin has him strung up in his dungeon. And this is, I I wanted to, I mentioned this earlier a little bit about like kind of civility. Yeah. And there's this ridiculous but kind of great moment where uh, Mikkel's hands are bound behind his back and Martin says, oh, you dropped your drink earlier and he gives him another one. Yeah. Like he literally couldn't even bring it to his mouth if he wanted to. Yeah. And he sits down and they kind of have a whole like chat as he puts it. Yeah. But this is kind of a theme that I think the movie establishes and kind of creates on its own a little bit. Yeah. And it's this idea and it's furthered too by when you meet uh, Henrik's brother, who's kind of a known Nazi sympathizer and yeah. used to be a Nazi. Mm-hmm. And when we meet him, he's very different than the book. In the book, he's kind of just like an old, raving, like, angry man. Yeah. But in the movie, he's weirdly polite and nice. Yeah. And kind of just creepy. (laughs) But it was this difference that I noticed thanks to reading the book. And I thought about it more. And I'm like, there's definitely, they're creating this idea that, like, a lot of people, a lot of men will be polite and kind and quote-unquote civilized and civil. Yeah. And, but they're also, but that doesn't mean they're not abusive and terrible and horrible. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they use that politeness to kind of, to their advantage. As a weapon, yeah. Uh, Martin has a great line to Mikhail when he's strung up in his basement. He says, let me ask you, he's like, when I asked you for another drink and to come inside... Why did you come? He's like, you knew something was off. Yeah. Why don't people trust their instincts? Why don't people trust their instincts? He's like, he's like, the fear of offending is worse than the fear of pain. Yeah. He's like, for people, for Mm -hmm. some reason. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think, kind of probably true in a lot of ways. But I just think this is a great 
juxtaposition to Lisbeth, a character who is viewed as not being civilized, yeah. not being polite or socially engaging. As a freak. You yeah. Know. Mm-hmm. But she has a strong moral compass a sense of right and wrong and judgment. Yeah. So I really liked, I think the movie kind of created this comparison through dialogue, through changing some characters a little bit, like Henrik's brother. Yeah. And just kind of tweaking some things. But I thought it was real. It was the first time I ever like put that together in my head. Yeah. And it was from reading the book too. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. I just really liked that a lot. I like that too. That's a good point. Yeah. But it's... Yeah, it's tied around that one line where he's like, why don't people trust their instincts? And I love that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And um, yeah, he reveals to uh, Mikel as well that his father had killed all those women and was like super sick and twisted. And basically when Martin was like 14 or something was like, I'm going to show you how to do this. And got and also involved Harriet in it. She knew about this as well. Yeah. And implied that like they wanted Harriet to be in on it or to and that their father was sexually abusing Harriet and, and Martin as well. Yeah, and Martin. And it's like very twisted, like screwed up, awful, terrible situation. But Martin doesn't know where Harriet is. And Mikkel kind of accuses him of killing Harriet. And Martin is like, where is she? Did you find her? And yeah. so it's almost like he wanted to kill her, but never got the chance. I love that realization. Yeah. Where <laughs> he you know, grabs Mikel by the throat and says, where is she? And Mikel, like, once again, kind of being a little dim-witted, he's yeah. like, you killed her. You killed her. <laughs> and he's like, you're useless. He's like, you useless fucking detective. Yeah. I like that they kind of refer to Mikel a few times as a detective in this story, because he is in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I like that. But essentially, uh, things go from bad to worse. When he put on some menu. When he puts on some menu. <laughs> Sail away, sail away, sail away. <laughs> what a great, creepy song. Yes. And I love the set production choice of having it on one of those tape reels. Yeah. Because it kind of makes you, it looks like it's old and it makes you, it sets in the idea that he's been doing this for a long time. Yeah. Like this is his murder song. Yeah. This is what <laughs> he he gets his murder onto, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. This is like a American Psycho and uh, what, Walking on Sunshine. <laughs> Oh yeah, it was um no was Huey 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 Lewis and the oh, News. Oh yes, mm-hmm. um I forget the song though. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I read that Daniel Craig actually was the one who came up with the idea to use that song. Like it was just like on his iPod. And oh he was my like, god! What if we do Enya? <laughs> so yeah, he's about to get real murdered when Elizabeth creeps into the house with her trusty golf club. No, it's just one she picked up. And the golf club that she always carries with her in every scene. She hits him so hard in the movie. Oh my God. You can like hear it. And you see a tooth fly out of his mouth. Yeah. And you, and when you see him after that, his whole jaw is like dislocated. Oh my God. It's so gross. It's amazing. Looking. I love it. Cause you're like, that would, that would fuck you up. Like she took a swing. Oh my God. <laughs> I love, yeah. Just one swing. And he is like, messed up yeah she so she hits him he goes down she runs to Mikel to um help him because he's suffocating and then martin gets away drives away in his car lisbeth chases after him on her motorcycle <laughs> after getting permission from Mikel, <laughs> that's in the movie <laughs> may i kill him it is in the movie but yeah. i kind of love it she's like may i kill him and he's like yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
As he's like gasping for breath, he's like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can do that. (laughs) And so it's interesting in the book, Martin kind of like drives into a truck and suicides. Yeah. I think because he realizes like his life is over, even if he's, if, even if he escapes in the movie, Lisbeth kind of runs him off the road. Yeah. <laughs> like a fucking badass. Yeah. And then his car blows up. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> it's so good. And they still realize if Martin didn't kill Harriet. Where is she? Where is she? What happened to her? Yeah. And this leads them to. They realize that her best friend at the time was Anita. Mm-hmm. Her one cousin. And they thought if anyone helped her or knew where she was it would be her yeah and in the movie we've met her already she mm-hmm. lives in london right now and Mikel already went out to her to like talk to her once yeah but essentially they go back out there and they give her the news about martin's death and they they wiretap her phone to see if she'll call anyone and she doesn't mm-hmm. and this is still the movie by the way and they're like well she could just be dead or she doesn't know where she is yeah but then they come to a different conclusion. In the middle of sex. In the middle of sex, as you do, <laughs> in a moment of epiphany and ecstasy, <laughs> that she is Harriet. Yeah. So they confront her about it, and mm-hmm. she basically admits to it. And you find out that when she was on the island and she saw Martin, her fears about this never being over were kind of like realized to yeah. her. And she decided to run away. Mm -hmm. And so with Anita's help, she snuck off the island, essentially. And then with Anita's passport, left the country. And that's kind of how she took on her identity. Yeah. So that's kind of how she ended up where she was. In the book, um, they do the same like wiretapping of Anita's house. And Anita ends up calling someone to report that, oh, Martin's dead, something, something. And you basically find out that Harriet is living in Australia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and on a sheep farm. Yep. Just. She's the head of a sheep farm. Shearing sheep. Yeah. She's got a good life out there. And I, I understand why this was changed. For the yeah. Movie. It's definitely a tonal shift. But you find out the same information as in, in the book and in the movie. That basically Harriet was, you know, sexually abused by her father for many years And there was basically an incident at one point where he was very drunk and she thought that he was going to kill her. And it got to a point where he was chasing her out to like this dock. And she basically like he fell in the water or she pushed him and like kind of held him underwater and killed him. Yeah. And Martin was there and like saw her do it and then began sexually abusing her. So she has this shame of like, killing her father and the secret that she feels like she can't reveal to anyone. And Martin knows about it and is using that against her and is also abusing her. And so she felt like she had no no other option other than to just disappear. Yeah. Yeah. And basically that whole backstory is the same in the movie as well. Yeah. Except she totally clubs him in the head, her father with an oar. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like really just knocks him into the water, which was kind of great. But yeah. Uh, Yeah, and then she goes back to visit Henrik now that Martin is gone and that threat in her life is over. And they're reunited. And I love this scene in the movie. I know. Because it's so sweet and sad. Yeah. Seeing Henrik finally, like, like he was certain she was dead. Yeah. Like, they didn't even... 
he had considered she was still alive, but like thought it was impossible. Mm -hmm. And so to see him reunited with her is so touching. It is. Yeah. Except that his other child figure, Martin, (laughs) you know, was dead at this point and And also also a murderer, serial rapist. Yeah. So. (laughs) Whatever. Swap one out for the other. Yeah. You know, (laughs) it's fine. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Mikel decides not to go public with this information for Harriet's sake, essentially. Yeah. Because yeah. she's been through so much trauma and they basically want to protect her and allow her to reunite with her family um, without this shadow over yeah. her. Um, but yeah, it's not really explained in the movie. No, no. And it's something the first time I watched it, probably the first couple times, I didn't even think about it. Yeah. And it was only later. And it's kind of a detail that almost doesn't matter in some ways. Yeah. But when you think about it, you're still kind of a little like. What happened with that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is where Henrik's dirt on uh, Venestrum. Venestrum comes up. The thing that Mikel was kind of like working towards specifically. And he finds out. It's kind of nothing. Yeah. It's he embezzled some money from uh, Venestrom, or I'm sorry, from Vanger. Vanger Industries to start his own company. But that was years ago. It's past the statute of limitations. Like, there's nothing they can do about it. Yeah. And it might hurt his, like, popularity a bit, but not much. Mm-hmm. So Mikel's kind of, like, screwed and back to square one. Yeah. And he's telling Elizabeth about this. And at this point, she's basically like... So if someone had information on him, like his hard drive, (laughs) that might be good for you. (laughs) And he's like, what? And basically, Elizabeth, when she was researching Mikkel, started researching Venestrom, too. Yeah. And had access to his whole computer. Yeah. She's like, he does all his business on his computer. I have it all here. So using his computer they find out everything about his whole criminal empire yeah Mikel mafia connections the whole lot yeah Mikel writes a whole new article with like solid evidence this time it puts Venestrum on the run yeah meanwhile Elizabeth is like you know what there's kind of just a lot of money here <laughs> Sit- Sit- sitting in a bank not yeah. doing anything <laughs> I might as well take it yes <laughs> it's amazing she basically you know gets some fake passports from her hacker network yes of anarchists i love it and um circuit breaker (laughs) she has all these bank codes it's very confusing i don't even try to keep track of it the book was very specific it was very detailed but she basically transfers money from some of venestrom's accounts into bonds and then translates that into other accounts that basically end up going into an account that she owns. So she gets the money. Yeah. It's pretty cool. And, and Venestrom is so busy with other shit going down. Yeah. Like being exposed. Yeah. That he can't really do anything about that. So Mm -hmm. she kind of just gets a whole bunch of money that she can use as she wants and kind of gets control of her life again. Yeah. There's a great part too, where so Venestrom is on the run and people are like the Swedish police are like searching for him because he's a criminal now. And Lisbeth actually ends up kind of calling in the tip that gets him murdered. Does she? I forgot about that. Yeah. Because like she specifically thinks about how Mikkel told her a story because he was looking in the records on this guy's computer about how he um, 
like waterboarded this woman because oh, she refused yeah. to get an abortion. And then she ended up going through with it because like he was just a piece of shit. And she's like, hmm. And then she calls like a lawyer or somebody involved with him and just gives him like the address where Venestrom is hiding. And then like three days later, he's murdered. Oh, yeah. I do <laughs> so she kind that. of like puts the information into the world. And then she's like, we'll see what happens. We'll just see. I, and, who yeah. Knows? Who knows what's going to go down? I don't know. Oh, uh, yeah. Elizabeth getting revenge. So that's it. Oh, man. There's just one little part at the end. Just a little extra bit uh, where Elizabeth realizes that she loves Mikkel. Yeah. And it's not as explicit in the movie, but I think we can pretty much interpret her feelings. She feels a strong connection with him. She says that she made a friend yeah. to people in the movie. Uh, and in the book, she like is like explicitly I love like, I love him. Like, I know I do. Mm-hmm. So she gets him a gift in both versions. She goes to give it to him. And then she sees him with Erica Berger. Yeah. And just seeing them together and their like relationship that is clearly still a factor in his life. Yeah. She just kind of is like, I can't do this. And she leaves. Yeah. And that's how the story ends. That's how it ends. Uh, that's how the book ends and that's how the movie ends. And that's how the movie ends forever. We don't even get... We the, don't even get a sequel. We don't get a sequel. Ugh. The David Fincher Girl with the Dragon Tattoo trilogy ends at movie one with Sad Elizabeth driving off into the distance. I know. And it's... ah. Uh, God, the greatest tragedy of the modern era. It is. It's very sad. <laughs> it is. Um, I want to talk a little bit, though, about kind of the odd structure of this story. Yeah. Because there's a great lessons from the screenplay video that we will put on our Patreon mm-hmm. where he discusses the kind of odd act stru- structure of this movie where the Most whole... movies are three act structures. Yeah. And you could probably break this into a three act structure, but essentially... The climax with Martin being the killer and dying and all and Harriet coming back again would have been like the end of most movies. Yeah. But then we get this whole extended part with Elizabeth going undercover and stealing this money and seeing what happens to Venestrom. Yeah. And then her and Mikkel like and realizing that she cares about him. Yeah. Which extends the movie by a good 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. I'd say at least. Yeah. Uh, so it feels weird i'd say the first time you watch it if you don't know the story and you're yeah, like what's where's, happening is where's this, this gonna going end? Yeah. yeah uh at this point knowing the movie i'm fine with it and i think it's interesting and it is fun just to watch elizabeth kind of do this undercover yeah heist basically that's kind of short but the book is a little bit harder for me to kind of grapple with yeah once the action ends like, the level of excitement really drops. It does. And there's a lot about Mikkel writing the article on Benestrom. He's writing a book on it. And then Lisbeth's, like, con and everything that's going on with that. And I don't really feel like it really holds the interest too much. No. Essentially, my biggest problem is once Martin is dead, the actual obstacles and challenges that they face seem totally surmountable Mm -hmm. and like not a big deal. Like even finding Harriet 
didn't seem like that big of a deal. Like everything yeah. goes according to plan. Everything with the article is perfect. Mm-hmm. Like it does everything they want it to. Lisbeth's plan goes Lisbeth's well. plan is like executed flawlessly. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of like overall, like, I don't know, like, and this is still like a hundred pages of the book. Yeah. Like near the end after Martin dies, where we get all of these things. And I'm like, there's, there's not really a lot of conflict going on. Like there's not a lot of like obstacles or things they have to overcome. Yeah. And I think it, you feel that a lot. You know, something that I wonder about this book and I love this book, but I am honest enough to admit where it's faults lie. You know what I mean? Like I can say that I love something and still admit where it has flaws. And I think this book could have used a lot of editing, I'm not sure where that process was because the author died. That's true. And so I'm not sure, you know, if things could have been a little more polished. Maybe if he hadn't died and they could have maybe gone through some revisions of this manuscript. Um, And it feels like a lot of detail in certain parts. It does drag in certain parts as well. But what I love about this story are the messages, the themes, and the characters. And they shine so brightly for me that it's like I can overlook those problems in pacing, but I will admit that they're there. And I do usually tell people when they're reading this book, like kind of has a slow beginning, really exciting middle, and then a little bit of a slow ending as well. Yeah. <laughs> now, do you think the other books, because I haven't read the other books in this series, are they paced better, do you think? I think they are. Okay. Yeah, both the second and third books for me anyway, I literally couldn't put them down. Yeah. Like I read them and I was so furious that I had to keep reading them. And I reread them and I was still just as furious the second time reading, (laughs) even though I already knew what happened, I was still like, oh my God, I'm so angry. I have to read. Um, And the second and third books really get into like Lisbeth's past. And it's very, again, those themes that I touched on, like the exploitation of the vulnerable people in power that, don't care about who they trample on and then a system that stands by and does nothing. And those are things that I'm very passionate about. So to have them like in these stories is like right up my alley. Yeah. (laughs) Well, maybe that came too from the author, like writing one book and then moving on to other books. Maybe he just like got better naturally at like the pacing and the setup and everything as he went. So I don't know, but what's really interesting too is the author talking about these like extreme Nazism like groups as well and he actually worked for a magazine that was kind of like Millennium Mm -hmm. where they wrote about extremist right wing groups and he was actually like under threat a lot and like received death threats and was like keeping his identity kind of like on the DL so because of the stuff that they published Um, just kind of exposing Nazism extreme white supremacy in Sweden and kind of dedicated to exposing that and drawing attention to that and campaigning against it. What a badass. I know. That's awesome. Yeah. It's so sad that he died so young. I know. But at least we have this fantastic trilogy. Exactly. And it's only a trilogy. No other books besides these three exist. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So that's our, that's our uh, review analysis of both these versions. But now comes the ultimate question, Adina, yes. and I'm I'm putting you on the spot. Uh, can you pick one? I'll, I'll ask you that. Can you pick one if you have to? I think I can pick one, but it's hard. Yeah. And I think I'll say the movie. 
Yeah. Because I fucking love the movie. It's so good. Yeah. And it's enjoyable for me to watch it. And I love it. And I enjoy reading the book too, but it is a little slower. Um, And there are some things that I have problems with. (laughs) The author at some points like kind of rants to himself almost about certain things like on the side. And I'm like, this is clearly like an author interjection. (laughs) Um, But again, I can overlook it because I care about the story so much. But in the movie, literally, there's nothing in it that I'm like, "Ah, I don't really like that. Yeah. No, I I was also going to say the movie. Mm -hmm. And for that reason that... um, David Fincher just does such a fantastic job yes. at making every nugget and shot and moment just like intriguing and worth it and so well executed. Yes. And the, the score that carries it mm-hmm. and the performances, the are performances, amazing. seeing these characters. And I think the script is a little tighter in terms of like the dialogue. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I love Elizabeth from the book, too, but there'd be parts where you know, she's mostly not saying anything yeah like a lot of the time but then there's sections where she talks a lot yeah and i'm kind of like this feels a little bit off off for her yeah character. where yeah. suddenly she's like expounding a lot on something mm-hmm. but i think the movie really struck a really good balance with how much she talked yeah where yeah she would explain something that was going on or whatever but like it wasn't a ton of that so yeah i, I just think the movie kind of corralled those elements a little bit tighter and mm-hmm. just gave like a little bit more of a complete package in my mind. Yes, it's amazing. And once again, like you said, the author passed away before any editing or anything like that. So in a way, it, it is maybe even a little uh, unfair to judge this as like from that standpoint because mm-hmm. it may have been edited a lot differently. But um, But as it stands, yeah, the movie for me. Movie for me, but the book is still very good. Oh, and I yeah. would highly recommend reading the entire trilogy. It's very exciting. I, de- I was talking to you earlier. I think I'm going to download the next book on audiobook and start listening to it because I'm very interested now that I've read the first book. Yeah. To find out what happens in the other stories, because since this trilogy isn't a trilogy I know. and I really want to know what happens next. I wish we could do another episode. I guess we could do like the Swedish versions, but I know they're not going to be that good. <laughs> yeah. Not only are they like um, not David Fincher, but they're like they were like made for TV. So, yeah. Well, you saw the first one, too. Right? Yeah, the first one was fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's always like if I'm going to watch Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, how could I not watch the David Fincher? I know. Version? Yeah, I would just. It would be unfair because I would just be overly critical of the Swedish version like the whole time. I'd constantly be comparing it. Yeah. And I don't want to be like mean about it. You know what I mean? Like I'm sure it's good in a lot of ways, but that's how I feel about it. All right. Let's do lightning round. Lightning. So we've already talked about some really great lines in the movie in terms of the script. Yeah. There's just a couple more I'd like to mention. Um, In Lisbeth's report on Mikkel, the lawyer is like, isn't there anything else like you could provide any other details? And <laughs> what she says is he sometimes performs cunnilingus, not often enough, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and the lawyer is just kind of like, OK, not really one I wanted to hear, but sure. <laughs> she just says it so matter of factly. It's great. And then there's another line where Henrik is telling Mikkel about his whole family. And he's like, oh, yes, my brother. Uh, is a Nazi, and then he's like, 
oh, yes, he's quite detestable. (laughs) (laughs) And just the way he delivers the line is so funny. Christopher Plummer is just so great in this role. I love him so much. Oh, yes, he's quite detestable. Quite detestable. (laughs) Like, he's, like, almost happy about it or something. Uh, In the book, (laughs) Mikel actually has to go to jail for a couple months. Yeah. And it's funny because, like, he knew about this early on, and it was kind of kept being hinted at throughout the book yeah and being familiar with the movie i'm like okay they're not gonna have him go to jail during this book and like completely like derail the momentum of it yeah and then sure enough he goes to jail during this story (laughs) for like two months yeah and the book spends like no time in jail but when he gets out he's like yeah it was actually kind of like nice it was like a holiday yeah he was like i spent some time in the gym working out they offered me like classes like college courses that i could take i really got to focus on my writing yeah they let me have my laptop and i, I could friends. write <laughs> it was like it was a little vacation and i'm like wow the swedish criminal <laughs> justice system versus the american one yeah i just thought that was <laughs> super funny <laughs> oh my god um so just real briefly i'd like to talk about lisbeth's almost like uncompromising view on certain like moral issues when they find out about like martin being a serial killer and like he's dead and everything uh is almost trying to like not explain away what he did but maybe kind of justify or understand why he was so crazy he was like well his dad kind of like introduced him to murdering and raping women at a very young age so it's no wonder he was fucked up and lisbeth is kind of like Yeah, he made the decision to kill all those women and no one forced him to do that. So you shouldn't be justifying or giving excuses to him. And she's also pretty uncompromising, too. She kind of criticizes Harriet. She's like, she shouldn't have left because then Martin killed like 50 women after that. And no one stopped him and no one knew about it. And if she would have just came forward or done something about it, like killed Martin or something, like that wouldn't have happened. And so I think... And I like that the book doesn't really present this as like the right way to think, but it's just like a different perspective instead of being like, well, you know, he had a troubled family and that's why he became this way. And she's like, yeah, a lot of people have troubled backgrounds, but they don't kill women. Yeah. And and Mikel even mentions like, well, she, she I don't think she knew he was killing women at this point. Yeah. Like she just knew that he was raping her. Yeah. And and so like I, I like that, too, that. It's not taking any stance. It's no. just creating a dialogue between characters for you as the reader to think about. And I always like that more in books, too. Like, they're not... I think sometimes when it tries to take a clear stance, it just ends up being preachy, preachy yeah. sounding. But instead, it's just like, here are the arguments, and you sort it out yourself, basically. So yeah. I also enjoyed that. Uh, my next one is... Th- David Fincher's movies, even like the way they're packaged when they're sold as DVDs is always something interesting. And I love that. And with Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, it came not like in one of those shitty plastic cases, but like in this nice like cardboard matte finish sleeve, Mm -hmm. basically. And when you took the disc out, it looked like a burnt uh, like CD yeah. that someone had scrawled with marker on it, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yeah. But it said like, uh, Sony. Sony, yeah, DVD plus R or whatever. Like, it just looked like a blank disc that someone had burnt on it. Yeah. Which is so cool. But apparently, it caused some problems because <laughs> people bought this and then they thought that their, like, actual copy of the DVD had been swapped out. Oh, my God. Like, they actually thought that these were, like, burnt. Pirated copies. Pirated copies of the DVDs, <laughs> which is so funny. That's amazing. Because as a graphic designer, I'm like, of course, Someone would do something really creative and interesting and fun 
and people wouldn't get it and be really mad about it. <laughs> like that sounds story of your life. Perfectly Ian. correct. <laughs> yeah. So that's lightning round. We did it. We did it. I'm so excited. I love this book. Love this movie. Please, everyone, if you haven't seen it, watch it, read it, tell me about it, contact me. Contact me. <laughs> Call us. <laughs> we'll post our phone numbers. Yeah, it's hard to say where this ranks David Fincher wise, but I mean it's I mean this is as good favorite. as it's as good as his best, I'd say. Like I don't yeah. think anything is like necessarily better. I have trouble like saying it's better than Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. Uh but I mean it's as good at least and it's just I could watch it anytime. I could too. Anytime it's on TV, I would watch this movie. So. Yeah. That's my take on it. Me too. And that's the episode. Yes. If you like it, please reach out to us and let us know your thoughts. On Twitter, we are at cover 2 credits with the number two, or you can mm-hmm. email us at cover to credits pod gmail.com. We're on Facebook too. We're on Instagram and we're on Patreon. So if you'd like to support us on Patreon, head on over there and check us out. We post, like I said, we're going to post that video from Lessons from the Screenplay. We post other articles and things um, about the books and movies that we're discussing. And we appreciate any support that you can give us, even if it's just reaching out, um, sending us, tweeting at us, or sending us a message. And also, please let us know if you have any suggestions for episodes to do. We love getting um, your feedback on what you'd like to listen to from us. So yeah, hit us up. Thank you for listening and supporting us for 50 episodes. Happy 50th. Here's to another 50 more. Hell yeah. Yeah. And we'll see you next episode. See you next time. Bye. Bye.